Okay, so the second section, we're going to open our Bibles a little bit. And uh, this lecture I've entitled Paul's Emphasis on Christ-Oriented Faith in His Letters. And essentially, it represents the thesis of my book, which uh, I'll just briefly introduce. And uh, my thesis is that Paul significantly emphasizes Christ-oriented faith in his theology. It doesn't get any more vanilla than that, all right? Which is probably why the marketers wouldn't put it on the back of the book, because uh, it wouldn't sell very well. Um, but I, I, I specifically stated it that way for a reason, because I feel that the, the view that I'm trying to interact with and argue against has significantly de-emphasized Christ-oriented faith in Paul's theology. So I'll just give you one example, um, and this is Sam Williams, who holds, uh, has argued for the faithfulness of Christ's translation. He says, Paul was not accustomed to thinking of Christ as the object of faith. The person of Christ is not faith's object. God is. And that's kind of the thing I'm arguing against uh, in this, uh, basically, in, in my book. So uh, I want to do this in uh, three stages. First, I want to consider uh, briefly, or maybe not so briefly, the historical context of Paul's theology and specifically his, his theology of faith. And <clears throat> I, I'm basically following my book here. So these lectures are just on my book. So, uh, so I don't know what that means about you buying it and reading it, okay? You, it's, you, know, you could look at it as more in-depth, or you could look at it as more in the same, and I'll, just, I'll leave that to you. Uh, but um, <clears throat> I wanted to start by asking, what does the word pistis mean in Paul? I think that theology is, is normally uh, done at the level of sentences and paragraphs in the Bible. Right? That's where meaning is usually found. Nevertheless, words are important too, and I do think this word is particularly important uh, in, uh, in Paul's discussions of faith. Um, almost everything he says about faith uh, uses the word pistis and the, and the corresponding verb pistuo. And also, I think there's, a lot, there's been a lot of debate uh, uh, among evangelicals uh, uh, about the meaning of the word pistis in Paul. The, if you look up the word pistis in the basic uh, Greek dictionary of uh, the New Testament, uh, there's, there's three definitions. Uh, one, the word sometimes means faithfulness. <coughs> Pardon me. Get a drink of water. So sometimes the word means faithfulness. Loyalty, uh, sometimes the word means faith, uh, belief, or trust. And then sometimes the word means like the body of faith, the content of faith. And these last two definitions correspond to, Augustine has a famous distinction between the faith by which we believe, number two, and the faith which is believed, number three. Uh, and so that, that's, um, uh, that's the three basic definitions. And the one that has been of most interest, I think, in recent discussion has been this first definition, faithfulness. Uh, and you see this, for example, in there's a book that's been very popular. Uh, Dr. Dorn was just mentioning it. It's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone uh, or by Faithfulness and, uh, and picking up on this definition. And it's always been recognized that the word sometimes means faithfulness in Paul. And a great example is Romans 3, 3. So I'm going to have us flip around a bit uh, in this lecture. So look at Romans 3, 3. 
so uh, here Paul is reflecting on the fact that the scriptures, the, like the prophetic oracles, are, have been given to Israel, and he he asks, though, he says, you know, God has made all these promises to Israel in Scripture. And he says, but what if they are unfaithful to him? Does that nullify all of his promises? And the way he says it in verse 3 is, what if some were unfaithful, some of the Jews? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And, and, and there it's uh, pistis theu, all right? So the faithfulness of God. And clearly there it means you know, in contrast with the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people, it means, it means God's faithfulness. Is God going to keep his word? You know, and God says, yeah. Paul says, yes, God is always true, though every man is a liar. So clearly, uh, uh, the word means faithfulness, and everyone thinks that it means faithfulness there, all right? There's always an exception, you know, the, uh, but uh, uh, like, uh, Roy Harrisville says, that means faith in God there, and I just think that's nuts, right? Um, but uh, it, I think everyone essentially acknowledges it means faithfulness there. Um, I think what's changed in the literature recently is that people argue that the word pistis means faithfulness much more often in Paul's letters than historically it's been understood. And, um, and, and closely tied to this is the idea that the word often means uh, faith and faithfulness at the same time. Uh, that uh, it can, both ideas. And that's, you can see that, for example, if you read uh, Matthew Bates's books, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, Gospel Allegiance, that's essentially his argument. <clears throat> and that's one reason that I bring this up, uh, because I do think this is in, it's uh, kind of in the air right now um, in, in, in some of the, uh, in, in, in things that are being written. <clears throat> I think a problem with this view is that uh, is that I do think these are two distinct but related meanings of the word, and that we should ask what they mean in context. So for example, in Romans 3.3, when it speaks of the faithfulness of God, it clearly is not referring to God's belief or trust. It's referring to his, his ability to be trusted to carry out his, the promises of his word, right? So, uh, you know, clearly, I think everyone sees the distinction of the words in a verse like Romans 3.3. 3. And what I, argue, what I suggest is that we should be consistent with that and, and ask ourselves, what does the word mean in each, in each use? But I think often you'll read in the literature that it kind of means both and that we're being too specific if, if we say that it, if it means one or the other. One text I wanted to uh, mention that uh, Richard Hayes has brought up over the years a number of times is it's a, um, uh, it's a statement by Philo in his biography of Abraham. And uh, Philo was a, was a first century Jewish philosopher. He lived, he was a contemporary of Jesus, contemporary of Paul, and he wrote a lot, and, he, uh, and the Christians preserved it, you know, so we can read it today. But uh, he reflects on the Abraham story, and, and it's interesting Philo really notices Genesis 15, 6. You know, Paul does too. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And, and Philo reflects here on Genesis 15, 6 and Genesis 22, pardon me. And he says, God marveling at Abraham's faith in him. He's thinking about Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. God marveling at Abraham's faith in him repaid him with faithfulness by confirming with an oath the gifts which he had promised. And he's talking about the oath in Genesis 22. If you've read the book of Hebrews, he reflects on the oath that God made. And same thing Philo's reflecting on. And what Hayes says is, <clears throat> see, 
The word faith in the same context can mean, the word pistis rather in the same context can mean faith and faithfulness, you know. But I think one problem with this argument that he's making is that Philo uses the word two times, and he's clearly engaging in wordplay, right? He, he's engaging in wordplay. He's saying Abraham trusted in the Lord, and God correspondingly was trustworthy. And so I, I think there's a, prom- a problem in the literature of this. And, you know, it's not new. It's, you know, it's, it, it goes all the way back to T.F. Torrance and, and John... Uh, John Murray had the same argument. Uh, you can, if you read Murray's commentary on Romans 1, 16, 17, you can see the same argument going on. But, um, but I think that one, this is a problem in the literature and, um, and that we should kind of decide what each, each use of the word pistis means in its context. Now, often those who argue that pistis means faithfulness all over Paul will appeal to Greco-Roman literature to show how often pistis means faithfulness or loyalty, you know, like maybe in the context of uh, war literature that talks about like the loyalty of certain citizens or something like this. And that's very true, you know, often in the literature, that's what pistis refers to. Uh, here's the thing, none of that literature has really influenced Paul <laughs> the apostle, right? But what has influenced Paul the apostle clearly is the Old Testament and the teaching of Jesus. And I say that because he quotes and alludes to these texts. So I suggest a better way to read Paul is actually in his historical context is by the texts that actually have influenced him, uh, that clearly have influenced him. It, it even influences like his syntax and his arguments you know, that he writes. And so what I wanna do in this section is I want to take a few minutes to uh, consider some of the texts that Paul refers to in the Old Testament and in Jesus' teaching. So let's start, <clears throat> let's start with Genesis 15, 6, uh, the, the text I just mentioned. So turn back to Genesis 15, <clears throat> verse 6. This is the covenant that God makes with Abraham, if you're familiar with it. And at this point, Abraham doesn't have a child, right? And all the promises are bound up on the child, and Abraham is exa- exasperated and says, I don't even have a child, <laughs> you know? And this is the famous, this is the famous uh, image that, that comes into the Abraham story, and that is of the stars. Uh, so we see it in verse, um, verse 5. It says, God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's the response. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. <clears throat> this verse is very important for Paul. He explains it, uh, he basically comments on it in Romans 4, uh, and then he also uh, cites it in Galatians 3 as well. And Paul reflects on the context. He reflects on the idea that God made this promise, your offspring will be like the stars, and Abraham, even though he didn't have children, even though uh, Paul kind of reflects on it from the perspective of Genesis 15, 17. Even though he, he was uh, as good as, his body was as good as dead and uh, his wife's womb was as good as dead, still he believed the promise of God that his children, his offspring would be like the stars. So what we see, I think, in this text is that Abraham's faith is his belief and trust in the promise of God. One interesting thing to note in this text, too, is how his faith in God's promise, faith in God's word, um, re- results in his justification, right? And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
And this, this verse is very important for Paul to say Abraham was justified by faith, by his trust in God's promise. And Paul even explicitly, if you read Romans 4, he says, he talks about Abraham's faith. He believed the Lord, and then he says, therefore, it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul clearly sees faith as the cause of his justification. And that's, I, you, I hope you know, I hope if you listen to the first lecture, you can see why I'm pushing, why I'm saying that, okay? Uh, so that's Genesis 15, 6. <clears throat> uh, another text that Paul cites in his teaching about faith is uh, Psalm 116, 10. So why don't we turn to Psalm 116. <clears throat> And in this psalm, the psalmist is crying out to the Lord in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. And he says in verse 10, I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are are liars. And uh, Paul uh, quotes this verse in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. If you know the book of 2 Corinthians, you know, Paul is, has, has undergone like deep affliction in Ephesus, and he's you know, in the midst of suffering. And, and he quotes this to say, I'm like the psalmist. I, tr- I believe, I trust in God in the midst of suffering, and I'm willing to speak in, in, in light of my belief. And Paul quotes the Septuagint, which gives a, um, a uh, kind of interpretive translation that says, I believed, therefore I spoke. In the, in, the, in the Greek translation uh, of this verse. And Paul quotes that, and he says, even so, he says, we believe, that is Paul, uh, and we speak. And, and he uses it to say, I'm even in the midst of persecution, I'm willing to speak the gospel, uh, I'm willing to speak the gospel because I trust in God and, and in his word. So here we see, what is faith in this verse? It's, it's confidence in God in the, mi- in the midst of affliction that enables Paul to speak the truth. That's Psalm 116. Interestingly, Psalm alludes, Paul alludes to this uh, same verse in Romans 3 when he says, all mankind are liars. This is, uh, it's an allusion to this verse. Uh, God is trustworthy, but when people are not. Uh, okay, uh, another text that's really important is Isaiah 28, 16. <clears throat> and... Man, this is a somewhat obscure passage, like some passages are in the prophets, but we do have Paul's interpretation of it, so we know how he was reading it. Um, But uh, the the context here is the Assyrian crisis uh, of Jerusalem, and uh, in the midst of that crisis, Israel was, uh, you know, when they were afraid the city was going to fall, they were really tempted to rely on Egypt uh, for deliverance. And, And I think that's probably what's going on here. And you can see verse 14, Isaiah 28, verse 14 says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you've said we've made a covenant with death and with Sheol we've made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we've made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we've taken shelter. Therefore, and I do think it's talking about their reliance on Egypt. Um, That's kind of the falsehood, trusting in men instead of God. Verse 14, or verse 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am, I am one who has laid, a, laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. 
and that probably that sounds familiar. Um, commentators on Isaiah disagree on what the stone is, uh, but Paul clearly interprets it in Romans nine and ten as the Messiah. Uh, that and and I think it fits the context that. What, what is the foundation stone, in a sense, of Jerusalem and of the new Jerusalem? It's, it's Christ himself. It's the, the promises to David and to his son, and that and you can trust in it, right? And that's what it says. It says, whoever believes, the Hebrew says, will not be in haste. And I think that means won't run away because they're, they're scattered in judgment. The, the Greek translation gives an interpretive. It says, will not be ashamed. Probably the translator didn't know what the word meant, and um, but I think he he sensed that the context was was a judgment context, and I think he, it's saying will will not be ashamed in judgment, and that's what Paul quotes when he says uh, that God has laid a cornerstone in Zion, and whoever believes in Him, all who believe in Him, Paul says Romans ten, will not be ashamed. And notice the conditional nature of faith in this verse. There really is an if then. If you believe in the stone. Right, you will not be ashamed, and and so I think you see faith as a condition of salvation here too. Interestingly, you do see it's very rare in the Old Testament. I would say to have explicit statements of faith in the Messiah, but Isaiah, surprise, surprise, you know, Isaiah is the place where you see it, and 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 this is one place. That's Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Um, another text that Paul cites in Isaiah is Isaiah fifty-three one. I'm guessing that many of us in here are familiar with Isaiah 53, all right? All right, the, the suffering servant, the fourth servant song. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. And I think Isaiah 52 and 53 made like an impact on Paul's thinking. I just, because you, you, maybe you're familiar with Paul, like his, his ambition was to preach Christ where no one had, where he had not been named. Um, that comes from the end of Isaiah 52. I think he studied the scripture and, and it just made an impact on his whole ministry. And in, in Romans 10, Paul cites Isaiah 53.1, uh, where it says, who has believed what he's heard from us? Isaiah asks, who has believed it? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And I think what the prophet is reflecting on here is that this message of the suffering and exalted servant, uh, this message, no one believes it. And that's, that's what Paul reflects on, too. He reflects on, like, it's been proclaimed in all the synagogues, but people don't believe it, right? They don't believe he's the crucified and risen Messiah. And, and so here I think you see a really explicit statement, even though it's reflecting on unbelief, right? But it's an explicit statement of faith in the crucified and risen Messiah, uh, in the suffering and exalted servant. And um, uh, uh that's all I have to say about that. All right. Okay. Uh, so why don't we move then to uh, uh, a very famous text Paul cites, Habakkuk 2.4. And um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, you know, still have to do that. Right? So Habakkuk 2.4. Um, and this is a famous verse. Uh, Behold, uh, his soul is puffed up. It will not be upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is another obscure passage in the prophets. It's hard to understand. I think it's drawing a contrast between the pride of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians 
and between uh, Habakkuk, who, who hears the word of God and believes it. One thing I would say is, if there's one verse that might, that would, might push me or, or we should consider seeing faithfulness as a very central and important part of Paul's understanding of justification, it would actually be this verse. And the reason I say that, I'm, I'm reading from the ESV. I don't know what text you're reading from. It's, I, I'm, do a lot of you have the ESV? I don't know. But um, in the footnote, it says, um, you can see the footnote three, the righteous shall live by his faith or faithfulness. And it's the Hebrew word emunah almost always means faithfulness uh, in the Old Testament. So, you know, it's really kind of, it almost feels like special pleading to translate it as faith uh, because, uh, because it just almost always means faithfulness. So shouldn't we translate it, the righteous shall live by his faithfulness? Um, and the Septuagint even translates it that the righteous lives by God's faithfulness. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting text, and there's a lot of layers with it. Um, I think, and, and this argument goes back to James Barr, that there is no other Hebrew noun for faith. Um, and um, I think the, the translation faith fits the context of Habakkuk. Uh, if, if you're familiar with the context of Habakkuk, uh, he's reflecting on how can God judge Israel by a, a more wicked nation? by the Chaldeans. You know, wait a second here. And the answer comes in chapter two. It's an oracle that says, I'm also going to judge the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, but you have to wait for it. You have to wait for the word. And, and then chapter three is like his Habakkuk's kind of willingness to wait, you know? And uh, so I do think it makes sense in context. Arguably, it, it was understood similarly in, in the Qumran uh, commentary on Habakkuk. Certainly, I think Paul, in context, understood this to be the righteous shall live by faith. He, he kind of, he doesn't follow the Septuagint on this. Uh, and so I do, think, I do think he understood this to mean kind of faith in the word, waiting on the word of God to be fulfilled. Nevertheless, I, I do recognize that um, this is one of the hardest, harder texts for my thesis. So, um, and, and then one other text that Paul, so I'm basically trying to go through all of the texts that Paul uh, quotes from and alludes to in his teaching on faith. Uh, and the, the other important text is actually from Jesus' teaching, and we have it now uh, in Matthew 21. And I'm going to turn to both of these texts. They're, they are similar to each other, but turn to Matthew 21, um, verse 20 to 22, uh, and... Um, uh, I should probably read in verse 18. It's the cursing of the fig tree, if you're familiar with that. Uh, so it says, In the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went down and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will, not only do, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Notice the condition, if you have faith, right? And he's saying, he's, what is he talking about? He's talking about trusting God in prayer. I do think the mountain is the temple mount. And he's talking about the judgment of Jerusalem in context. But, um, but he's what's, what, what is Jesus teaching on faith here? It's, Trusting God in prayer, 
Uh, and, and similar passages in Mark 10, uh, or Mark 11, rather. Turn to Mark 11 and um, look at verse 20. Mark 11, verse 20. And uh, here, uh, it's the same story, but I'll just read it. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered in its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has been withered. And Jesus answered, have faith in God. Part of the reason I wanted to read Mark 2, this is a pistis theu construction. This is often appealed to. And clearly, theu here is the object of faith. Some have argued that it means have like the faithfulness of God, but that's it's an obscure argument. Um, almost everyone agrees it means have faith in God. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. So again, he's, he's, it's Jesus teaching on trusting God in prayer. And I do see the condition as well. Whoever has faith, this will happen, right? And Paul picks up on this. I wonder, uh, where, where does Paul speak about faith that moves mountains? 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love passage, right? Paul, and it's interesting, Paul exaggerates Jesus' teaching. He says, if I have all faith, not just the mustard seed, right? And that moves mountains, you know, not just the one mountain, you know, but then he says, if I have love, I have love. And, and yet I don't have love, I'm nothing, right? So, but uh, clearly, he's alluding to Jesus' teaching uh, about trusting God in prayer. Okay, uh, so, uh, <clears throat> you know, these are the texts that Paul refers to in his teaching about faith. And I think as you read them, you know, we see pretty clearly, you know, it's referring to belief and trust in God and his word. Uh, and um, sometimes even faith in the Messiah. Uh, and that you see that a, 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 that these that faith is conditional, and also you even see the causal role of faith, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, I'm going to move to the second point then in my lecture, uh, which is uh, some direct statements of Christ-oriented faith in Paul's letters. And a key point that I want to make here is that everything I'm talking about in this lecture is outside of the eight pistis Christu constructions. So what I'm trying to argue is that I think you can, I think you could see that Paul emphasizes faith in Christ as the means by which we are justified, even if we should translate all those things, faithfulness of Christ. And so I'm trying to push back against the theological argument. Uh, first, let's look at some direct statements of faith in Christ and turn to, we'll, we'll just kind of walk through Paul's letters. Turn to Romans 3.25. Um, Here, Paul says that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Um, but the word order in Greek is actually uh, as, a, as a propitiation by faith in his blood. And, and I would argue here that the King James is actually correct uh, and that Paul presents the blood of Christ as, uh, as the object of our faith. Now, the, now, the pushback would be, well, but blood is connected with propitiation, with sacrifice. And that's the reason the ESV translates it. But I think the word order matters, actually, and, and, and is determinative in this context. Um, but I could be wrong about that, okay? Uh, uh, look at Romans 9.33. 
Uh, here's Paul is quoting Isaiah 28, and he's actually merging it with Isaiah 8. And he says, um, verse 32, he says, Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, in Jerusalem, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he quotes it again in verse chapter 10, verse 11. Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And he's clearly referring to the risen Christ. So here clearly he speaks of the risen Lord Christ as, uh, as the object of our faith. Uh, look, at, um, look at 1014 while we're in this passage, uh, famous missionary passage. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, in him of whom they have not heard? And it's clearly speaking about the risen Christ so, uh, as the object of our faith. Uh, look at Galatians. Uh, turn to Galatians 2, verse 16. And this is like ground zero of the Pistis Christu debate, all right? Galatians 2, 16. And two of the Pistis Christu phrases are in this verse. But also, there's a clear statement of faith in Christ in this verse, uh, so I'll start in verse 15. Paul, this is Paul saying to Peter, We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Literally faith of Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. That, no one questions that phrase because it's the verb pistuo and then the phrase in Christ Jesus. It's clearly referring to uh, Christ as the object of our faith. So uh, there are two pistis Christu phrases that are debated in this verse, but in the center of the verse is a clear statement, as Hayes himself would acknowledge, of faith in Christ. Notice, though, notice he says, he says, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. Right? He even says, we, we believe to be justified, that there's a causal relationship between faith in Christ and justification. Uh, turn to um, Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. Uh, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks. So faith in the Lord Jesus. Um, look at Philippians 1, 29. Um, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So uh, there Paul says, uh, the gift of God to the Philippians is both their faith in Christ and their suffering. Uh, and um, so an, another clear statement. Um, there's others, but maybe I won't take you through all of them. Maybe I'll just show you the last one, uh, 2 Timothy 315. Um, pretty famous passage. Paul tells Timothy, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And I think he means, like, what is the goal of the Old Testament? It's really pointing toward Christ and calling us to faith, leading us to salvation, right? And, and that's in contrast with like the myths and the genealogies, the false kind of hermeneutical approaches to the Old Testament that are obscure and not pointing toward Christ. So, um, so my point here, you know, I just realized in this context, so many people are probably just thinking, duh, 
I mean, of course, you know, Paul like speaks about faith in Christ. Like that's, you know, let's move on to the, the from the basic principles of our faith, you know. Um, but I think, um, you know, in, in the academy and in academic literature, this idea is really questioned. As I just, as I said in the beginning, like um, Sam Williams saying, Paul was not accustomed to thinking of Christ as the object. And I'm just trying to point out, actually he was. Uh, and there's a lot of texts that say that. So, um, so those are some direct statements. Uh, also, I think an interesting thing is that when Paul talks about faith in God, he regularly, almost always identifies him as the God who raised Christ from the dead. It's kind of like, you know, when you think of Israel's God in the Old Testament, who is he? Well, yeah, the Exodus. He's the one who brought Israel out of the Exodus, right? Um, that's what it means to believe in Israel's God. Well, as the gospel comes into the world, it's like, you know, kind of like Isaiah said, forget the old things. Let's think about the new things. Who is this God? He's the one who raised Christ from the dead. So even faith in God for Paul is oriented toward the resurrection of Christ. It's to believe in the one who raised Christ. Uh, so the best example is probably Romans 4. Uh, <clears throat> because again, Romans 4 is, is probably the most important discussion of faith in Paul's letters. Um, and... Um, you know, uh, here, Paul reflects on Abraham's faith, and then he says, verse 22, as I noted earlier, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, because he trusted in God, even in the midst of unpromising circumstances, he believed the promise of God. Uh, verse 23, but the words it was counted to him, in Genesis 15, 6, were not written for his sake only, but also for ours. It will be counted to us, that is, justification, who, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So even when Paul reflects on what does it mean to believe in God, it's to believe in the God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Uh, it, it's profoundly oriented toward Christ. Similar is 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 13 and 14. Um, and uh, here Paul, he's quoting Psalm 116, that psalm we looked at earlier. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. I think Paul's thinking of speaking the gospel in tribulation knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And I think what Paul gives in that knowing clause is the content of his faith. Like he believes in the God who raised Jesus and, and has the promise to raise all who are in Jesus and bring them uh, together. Uh, and then First Thessalonians 1, 8 to 10 is similar. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, um, you know, Paul reflects on the initial faith of the Thessalonians, and he says, verse 8, he says, Not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God, so there's faith in God, has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report, he's going to define what this faith in God is. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So again, who's the God that they turned to? They turned away from idols to the God, and they believed in the God who raised Jesus from the dead uh, and, and who's, the, who's coming again. Uh, so um, what I'm trying to show you in these passages is that even when Paul speaks about faith in God, it is profoundly oriented toward Christ because God's very name and being is, is identified with the resurrection uh, for Paul. Uh, there is one text in Titus 3 where Paul talks about faith in God without speaking that way. So there's like one exception. Uh, it's Titus 3.8, and it's um, where Paul, Paul speaks of um, those who have believed in God, just kind of straight. You know, but that's the only place he doesn't speak in that way. And even in this context, it's, it, it's very oriented toward the gospel of Christ. Okay, so we saw some direct statements. Um, we saw the way that Paul speaks about faith in God is, is the God who raised Christ from the dead. And then the most common way, actually, that Paul speaks about the object of faith is he just speaks about faith in the good news, right? Faith in the gospel. Uh, and what's the good news? For Paul, it's clearly the gospel of Christ. Uh, so, the, the, and here's where we get to the, like these meaty passages uh, about faith. Uh, you could look at, we'll start in Romans 1. I'm not going to read these whole passages, but uh, you could look at Romans 1, 1 to 17. And here Paul, you know, he starts by speaking about the gospel. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, uh, which he promised beforehand. And then verse 3, what's the gospel about? Concerning his son. And then he says, descended from David, risen from the dead. And then, and then he goes on to say, and I'm proclaiming this message, calling for the obedience of faith, and your faith is known. What, what, what's, what faith is he talking about? He's talking about uh, uh, faith in the gospel concerning the Son of God. And, uh, and, and he even talks, so he says, we have this mutual faith, right? Uh, similar uh, is Romans 10. Uh, Romans 10 verse 6 to 13. I might read this one, uh, Romans 10, verse 6 to 13. 10, 6, uh, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down uh, or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think one interesting thing here is, notice the overlap. Uh, he talks about the gospel of the incarnate and risen Christ. That's the object of our faith. And then he says, you believe in the God who raised Christ from the dead. And then he says, um, you believe, everyone who believes in him, the stone, will not be put to shame. For Paul, these are all ways of talking about the same thing, right? Uh, that is faith in the gospel of Christ, that God sent his son into the world, he raised him from the dead, etc. Uh, and then one other passage to look at, a, a very important passage on faith, is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 5, rather. And, um, and uh, here, 
Here Paul speaks of, verse 18, the word of the cross. So the message is the message of Christ crucified. And then he speaks of those who believe it in verse 21. And similarly in 2.5, he says, he says, he came to them, you know, not with rhetoric so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but the power of God. And I think that probably refers to the power of the cross and also the power of the miracles worked by the Spirit among them. So, but my point is that, you know, this is a passage that is all about faith uh, in the, the message of the crucified Christ, right? It's the word of the cross. So my point in this section is that Paul significantly emphasizes Christ-oriented faith. A vanilla, maybe it's a vanilla argument, all right, or, or vanilla claim, uh, but many speak against it. And so I'm just trying to show, actually, Paul does. And, uh, and I think we've shown that in the texts that have influenced him, and especially in Paul's own letters. But what I'd like to do is just kind of um, uh, cinch it up uh, by talking about some conceptual par- parallels uh, that Paul speaks of, where we see kind of Christ as the object uh, of our faith in, you know, uh, maybe not stated directly in the words, but in the concepts, he's talking about the same thing. And I, when, I, when I thought about this years ago, I, there's a number of conceptual parallels that I thought about and that people have suggested, but I tried to limit it to texts in the same context as the direct statements so that I could say for certain it's parallel. You know, he's, he's talking about the same thing. So uh, one example that I would use, and, and one thing about this too is it teaches us a little bit more about what faith means in Paul. Um, one is uh, obedience to the gospel. Um, Romans 1.5 uh, is an example. In uh, uh, Here Paul says, he talks about the gospel of the Son, and he says, um, the risen Son has given me apostleship to bring about the obedience of his faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And I think the majority of commentators would say that means the obedience that is faith, that faith is a kind of obedience, that there's a, a submissive nature to faith, a willingness to kind of lay aside our will and submit to it. Um, uh, another interesting passage related to this, I think, is 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 6, um, where Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are the strongholds? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And, you know, there again, I think you see obedience to Christ. And I think he's talking about uh, the kind of intellectual obedience that, uh, that our, our mind, our arguments are taken captive to Christ. So obedience to the gospel is one example. Uh, a second example is very familiar, I think, calling on the name of the Lord, and you see that in Romans 10. So uh, turn to Romans 10, uh, 9 to 10. And, and I do think here, Paul, he speaks of confession in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And then in verse 10, again, he speaks of confessing. And then in verse 13, he speaks of calling upon. And I think these are very similar, confess, because they're both things that we do with our lips. We confess, we call it, so confession is stating, I believe Jesus is Lord, right? 
And I do think confession has an element of saying he and he's the one true God who saves because it's, it, Paul is alluding to Isaiah 45. And I'd love to read that text, but I'm kind of running out of time. So, but you could read Isaiah 45, um, 22 to 25, where I, and I do think confessing is confessing that he is the one true Lord who saves. And then calling upon, what is calling upon? Calling upon, you know, it's, it's a, an idiom in the Bible for worship and, and also for prayer, like to call upon the Lord. And so I do think, again, it's, we're calling upon the one true God who saves. And who's the Lord? And Paul, this is a good tip. Lord almost always refers to Christ, right? God is usually refers to the Father and Lord, not always, but almost always refers to Christ. So obedience to the gospel, calling on the Lord. Um, another example is he speaks about hoping in Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. And um, this is a passage uh, where... You know, I didn't read it earlier, but this is another like very central passage in Paul where he says, like, here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, raised from the dead. This is the thing you you are saved by if you continue to believe it, you know. And then and then, but notice what he says in 15 and 17. He says, um, you might know, maybe I should say this. Sorry, I'm feeling the crunch of time that that um the Corinthians apparently were like questioning the resurrection of the body because in Greek thought, like the body was bad and the soul was good. So they probably believed in the immortality of the soul, but were kind of questioning whether the body would be raised. And Paul says, well, the gospel says Christ was raised from the dead. So that's kind of important, you know? Uh, and, and notice what he says in verse 15. He says, uh, we are found, we are even found to be misrepresenting God if Christ is not raised, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's not true that the dead are raised. But then notice how in verse 17, he switches to, um, to um, oh, sorry, I'm off. Look at verse 17, sorry. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And then verse 19, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. And so he says, you know, Christ is the object of our faith and Christ is the object of our hope. And then there's one other text. Uh, I'd love to take you through more. <laughs> all right. But uh, what, what, what's the significance of hope in Paul, right? H hope means that our faith is oriented toward, especially toward the eschatological future toward the resurrection, toward the end. And, that's, and I think our faith in Christ is, is fundamentally eschatological in that sense. Uh, there's one other text that I'd refer to, and that is um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the metaphor of sight to talk about faith. Uh, and I'm not going to take you there for sake of time. But he says in that text, he says, it, you can read 2 Corinthians 3 to 5, basically. And he says that it's interesting. He uses faith as like a metaphor for sight. He says God has, Satan has blinded unbelievers to the gospel of Christ, to the glory of Christ. But God has like, like Genesis 1, God has shown light into the heart of believers um, to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. So he uses like kind of sight as a metaphor, but then he also uses sight as the antonym of faith. He says, very famous text, we walk by faith, not by sight. So it's almost kind of a paradox. Faith is seeing what cannot be seen, you know? 
And, and I, think part of, I think the reason is because Christ has come already, and yet he has not yet come, right? There's, it's, it's, it follows kind of uh, the object of our faith. And I'd love to say more about that. My bigger point here, though, is um, that uh, I do think that Paul emphasizes Christ-oriented faith in just a myriad of ways. He speaks about our faith in Christ as uh, the cause of our justification, as a condition for our salvation. And the key point here for me is that all of these texts are outside of the Pistis Christi constructions. So we could even agree to disagree on that. We could say, okay, it does mean faithfulness of Christ. And yet I can say Paul clearly says we're justified by faith in Christ. So thank you.